My guest today is Kit Shellel. He's a senior reporter at Bloomberg News, an investigative journalist, and an author. The Brillante Virtuoso was a Suez Max supertanker, the largest class of ship that can go through the Suez Canal. It had a million barrels of oil on it and was supposed to be escorted by a security team. It was hijacked and burned by Somali pirates. Nothing was stolen and the owners claimed $100 million for insurance. The British investigator is killed overseas. A Greek millionaire threatens people in court and no one can work out what's happened or how to discover who has committed the crimes. And that is just where the story begins. Kit has been researching this for nearly five years, and the story is, is wild. It's so phenomenal. Uh, it's similar to the episode with Mark Freestone about psychopaths last week. I just enjoy some low stakes listening. You don't need to remember this for your morning routine tomorrow. You can sit back and enjoy a great investigative reporter telling a super interesting story about wild corruption and piracy. Enjoy. All right, quick maths. The less that your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have, the more money that you keep. But with higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. So to reduce the costs and headaches, smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, and HR into one platform and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite and you are improving efficiency by bringing all your business processes into one platform. Over 37 thousand companies have already made the move so do the maths and see how you will profit with NetSuite. Back by popular demand NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com modern right now. That's netsuite.com modern. This episode is brought to you by AG1. AG1 is a daily foundational nutrition supplement that supports whole body health. Even with the best diet in the world, it is hard to make sure that you get everything that you need. And through a science-driven formulation, vitamins, probiotics, and whole food sourced nutrients, AG1 delivers comprehensive support for the brain, gut, and immune system. This is why Joe Rogan and Lex Friedman and Dr. Andrew Huberman and Tim Ferriss are all massive fans. They have tried every other product out there like I have, and this is by far the best one available. Since 2010, AG1 have improved the formula 52 times in the pursuit of making the best foundational nutrition supplement possible through high quality ingredients and rigorous standards. Also, there's a 90 day money back guarantee, so you can buy it and try it for 89 days. And if you don't like it, they'll just give you your money back. Head to drinkag1.com slash modernwisdom for that 90-day money-back guarantee, a year's free supply, vitamin D, five free travel packs, and more. That's drinkag1.com slash modernwisdom. But now, ladies and gentlemen, sit back and enjoy one of the wildest stories that I've ever heard with Kit Shalel. I can't believe that modern day piracy is still a thing. <laughs> yeah, I, you know, I didn't really know much about it before I started down the road of doing this book. Um, I just assumed that shipping was like everything else. You know, the economy modernizes, the world gets bigger and more corporatized and, you know, generally safer. But, you know, that just didn't, that hasn't happened yet with shipping. It's still in some ways uh, the same as it was back in the days when, you know, pirates were roaming the Caribbean. It's still kind of lawless around the edges. Um, it's still dominated by like very secretive, wealthy people. And it still does its business completely outside of the general public and law enforcement. And we just don't know what goes on out there. But it turns out there's a lot of crime happening, uh, which is kind of the subject of the book. Isn't it that 90% of the things that you see, 90% pretty much everything has arrived by ship? Yeah, that's right, Chris. It's um, the famous expression is 90% of everything. And, you know, that go that runs from your iPhone, your smartphone, your computer, through to a Barbie doll you bought for your daughter, um, through to, you know, some fresh fruit that's come in. It's all come by boat. 
it still works that way and you know we're still we're actually more reliant on chips than we have ever been in human history it's um it's so important it's interesting like i i don't understand how such a fundamental industry remembering what happened with the ever given when that blocked yeah. the suez canal and all hell broke loose for a couple of weeks i don't understand how it's still such a cowboy industry is there something about is there something very particular about this industry that's causing it to have loopholes that people can take advantage of yeah, there's, a, there's a few things happening at once really i mean the main one is is the same story that it's always been which is that governments and police forces and federal agencies they only reach about 10 miles out off the shore of whatever country you're in and out you know once you go past that point there is no law uh, quite literally that's the case you you know and so is that actually true well i mean technically when you're on a ship you're subject to the law of the of the flag that you're flying at the time um but you know the reality is that out at sea if um if a crewman gets thrown over the side of a, of a vessel and his, you know, his fellow sailors are threatened into silence. Who's going to prosecute that crime? Which police force is going to bring the perpetrators to justice? It's it kind of falls in between the cracks of global law enforcement, and you know, police and law enforcement agencies have a tough enough time dealing with all the shady crap that happens on shore. They just don't have the resources or the means to to stretch out into the sea, and so. You know, 150, 200 years ago, if um, uh, if you murdered someone and you wanted to to escape justice, you could just board a board a tramp ship at your nearest port and go off to the New World, uh, or go to Africa or Asia. And you know, it's still a bit like that. Um, it's just really difficult for law enforcement agencies to to monitor what's happening at sea. So it attracts a certain kind of person. I've got a friend, uh, Michael Malice, who's a, a famous anarchist. And he always uses this example. He says, um, a Frenchman murders a Canadian in Mexico who investigates it. Well, I mean, a good example of that problem is what happens when someone burns a, uh, a Greek-owned oil tanker that is carrying a million barrels from Ukraine to China, uh, is insured in London, and is carrying the flag of Liberia, and owned by a shell company in the Marshall Islands, and it's it's, <laughs> like, it's it's funny. It's funny to, when you put it that way, but that literally is the is the quandary when an incident like that happens. Everyone sits around going, "Whose job is this?" <laughs> <laughs> That's like one of those logic puzzles that you get in the back of the Telegraph. Yeah, it's, Julie it's a- is Julie is Joanne's mother. And Katie is her sister. They have known each other for 45 years. How old is blah, blah? How many birthdays is it until the dog dies? So, all right. I, I Talk to me about the fact. Let's get the, the pirates, right? So you have mm-hmm. this ship, which is trying to get from the Ukraine to China. It's got, mm-hmm. how, what's the value of the, the cargo? The cargo is about $100 million. It's a million barrels of oil. Okay. So at uh, the time, that's $100 million. Would have been way more now. Well, Should have yeah, exactly. done it now. <laughs> Should have bloody done it now. Um. Talk to me about how pirates operate. Like, you've got this huge ship. Mm. I, I, some people may have seen Captain, what was that film with Tom Hanks? Captain Phillips. Captain Phillips. It still kind of blows my mind that a little wooden boat with a couple of guys in sleeveless T-shirts and wooden guns mm. are able to stop a huge tanker moving at full speed. What's, what's their MO? Captain Phillips is, a, is actually a great starting point for, for the way modern piracy works. And especially in 2011, this was this was the peak of Somali piracy, which is the kind that everyone's you know read about and seen movies about. Um, there was a, a, an attack on a ship once every couple of days back in this period. It was rampant, and you know the the mo of the Somali pirates would be they had a skiff, which is a tiny little motorboat, quite quick, um, carrying maybe you know six or seven guys with guns and sandals and scruffy clothes. And they would be directed out to a large, any large vessel they could find coming through the Gulf of Aden. And they would come alongside it, use grappling hooks to try and board, um, literally climb 30 or 40 feet up the side of these enormous vessels, and then wave their guns around, um, get into the bridge, and take the ship back to Somalian water, where it would be held until someone paid a ransom. And the crazy thing was that, you know, these ransoms were paid. Um, they were often paid. Uh, not only would there be maybe 20 sailors whose lives would be at risk if the ransom doesn't get paid, 
um, a big a big cargo ship might be carrying one billion dollars worth of cargo on its own, twenty thousand containers that could be packed with laptops or you know what whatever else. They just simply couldn't afford to have these vessels, you know, sat off the coast of Somalia for months and months at a time. So they paid. I I I once spoke to a guy whose job it was to pay pirate ransoms, and he would sometimes literally. Uh, take a small plane and fly over Somalia and drop suitcases of cash out of the window. Um, so this insane industry sprang up and it was incredibly lucrative for the Somalis. So in 2011, um, the, the oil tanker in our story, the Brillante Virtuoso, comes into this area. And of course, everyone on board is terrified because they've seen Captain Phillips, right? They've heard the stories of what happens to sailors when Somali pirates get on board. It's the middle of the night and... All the, all the Filipino sailors on board are absolutely terrified that something's going to happen. What's special about this place that they are in the water? The Gulf of Aden. Um, well, the Gulf of Aden just happens to be uh, the, the part of, uh, uh, of the coastline of Somalia and of the Middle East. And it's at the uh, entry point to the Suez Canal. So if you're coming from Asia and you're transiting the Suez Canal, which you have to do, otherwise it's a, like a 3,000-mile journey around the whole of Africa, you have to come through the waters off the coast of Somalia and you have to get quite close. And, you know, this is a major world trade route. You know, we saw that when the Suez Canal got blocked for a week, how bad it was for the whole world. You know, there's, there's, there is no option but to transit Suez. So, you know, major vessels have to risk passing through this area. There's a few things that you can do to make it safer. Uh, go very quickly would be one. Um, a lot of vessels would go in naval convoys. So they'd have a big... British or American or European destroyer uh, escorting them through the area, which is going to put off any pirates. Uh, sometimes they would carry guards, armed guards. Um, and the Brillante Virtuoso decided it was going to pick up a security team off the coast of Aden, which is a, a Yemeni port. And so they had to just wait uh, overnight, um, you know, a few miles off the, off, the, off the coast of Aden for these guys to arrive by boat. That does seem a little bit like trying to fix the problem by hitting it with a big hammer. Like the, the, the very yeah. thing that you're trying to avoid by getting the security force on board is the thing that you're inviting by sitting there in the middle of the night. This, this becomes important uh, as the story progresses. But yeah, you're absolutely right. Um, it's not the cleverest thing to do to, uh, to wait in a heavily pirated area overnight, drifting without power. Uh, not only that, but the captain decided to light all the lights at the Brillante Virtuoso. So it was lit up like a Christmas tree. You could literally see it from 10 miles away. Um, you can imagine how the crew felt just what, sitting out there waiting. What security measures does a normal ship have? You don't have a, an escort with you. You're not moving quickly. Is there anything yeah. that they've got? Um, it, mostly they don't have guns or actual weapons. It's kind of legally problematic to shoot at, at, at people. From a from a container ship or or an oil an oil tanker, um, let alone the moral question. So they don't normally have guns, but in the absence of that, and you see a bit of this in Captain Phillips, they have these powerful water hoses that that are actually can blast these powerful streams of water at small vessels and can capsize them. Um, the Brillante ran uh, uh, barbed wire all the way around the the outside of the vessel to make it harder for pirates to board. Um, I think at one point they even had like a uh, a mannequin dressed up in in sailor's gear, propped up on the bridge to look like it was um, there was someone on watch, even when there wasn't. The pirate so scarecrow. The, yeah, pirate scarecrow. It's basic um, and uh, not terribly effective, it turns out. How did they get on then? So the, it, it was a strange incident. The um, the crew of this ship are all Filipino, and there's a watchman. Uh, it's about um, coming up to midnight, and he's just finishing his his shift, and he sees. Uh, a small vessel approaching very fast. So he goes down and hails them, and he can see from, from the deck of the ship that this is a small boat carrying armed men wearing masks. They're, they're carrying what look like AK-47 rifles. Um, they're in strange sort of camouflage outfits, and um, they shout up that they're the security crew, uh, that they've arrived, uh, they're the security crew, and they've arrived and are ready to board. Now, as anyone would, looking down at these men with their masks and their AK-47, they don't look much like professional security operatives. And he's re the guy on watch is really reluctant to let them on board. But, you know, he, he, he calls up to the captain in the bridge and the captain's instructions are clear and immediate. Let them, let them come on. 
So he, he lowers a ladder and literally invites them onto the ship. And they've been on board for no more than two or three seconds when they point their, their rifles at him and demand to be taken to see the captain. Well, straight away there, there's something dodgy going on. How would they know that they were waiting for a security force? How would they know that that would be a thing that they could shout up? That's, that's the big question. How would they know that there was a ship here waiting for security crew? You would have to have very specific knowledge. All right, so what happens next? So what happens next is this chaotic situation where you've got seven or eight armed men on board the ship. The Filipino crew are rounded up and locked in the television room. The captain and the chief engineer are taken away by these armed men. And from the point of view of the sailors who were locked in the TV room in the middle of the night, it's a terrifying situation. They have no idea what's happening. Uh, they hear the engines start up, which is not a good sign because they all know what happens if this ship makes it to Somalia. And then they hear gunshots. Um, and even worse than that, uh, they hear a, a, an explosion coming from deep within the ship and smoke starts pouring in through the grills. Um, so, you know, they, they, they recognize that this is a, a, the, about the worst situation they could be in. They're sitting on top of a, a million barrels of uh, explosive liquid and uh, the ship's clearly on fire. So they decide to take a risk and, and get out of the TV room. So they get out of the room. The pirates have disappeared. And so they sort of inch their way up to the bridge, up the, up the steps in complete darkness because the power's gone out. And they find the captain sort of hogtied on the bridge uh, waiting to be rescued. Hang, hang on a second. They've left. The pirates have left. The pirates just upped and left. They disappeared. They're supposed to take this back for ransom. That's their usual MO, right? Yeah. But they've, they've left. The captain's there. Everybody's there. No one's been harmed. No one's been hurt. No, no one's been shot. No, they just left. They, they, there was a mysterious explosion, and then they left. You can see why almost immediately people who had a financial interest in the ship were asking the question, what the hell happened here? This doesn't WTF. look like a normal. Yeah, exactly. So, okay. Yeah, so, how do they get like a normal piracy attack? How do they get saved? Is the is the ship still mobile at the moment? No, it's it's dead in the water. It's just floating. It's it's it's. There's a really serious fire happening now, and it's so hot they can feel the heat and they can hear the sound of the steel on the ship, uh, sort of warping and bending in the extreme heat, uh, which is you know a, a really an awful sound to hear. Um, but they do a couple of things. There's a security button on the, on the, on the bridge that they, that they press, which alerts the local uh, authorities and naval forces that there's a problem. And they issue a distress call, which is picked up by an American destroyer called the USS Philippine Sea, which is an hour or so away. And, you know, the Filipino guys say, Philippine Sea, Philippine Sea, we're under attack. Please come and help. And within the hour, the Americans are there. They've got a helicopter and um, they're in a position to help out. Right, so everybody gets picked up and taken away. Yeah, they, 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 they abandon ship. Uh, everyone abandons ship. They get into the lifeboat, and they're picked up and taken aboard this USS cruiser. Um, one, of the, one of the individuals, the chief engineer, somehow is left on board, and he's on the ship for about two hours on his own in very strange circumstances. Um, he later tells people he was just hiding from the pirates in the engine room. But he, uh, at the crack of dawn, he sort of appears on deck waving a flag, um, and it jumps into the water and is, is picked up and, and taken away by the Americans as well. Okay. Is, what did the rest of the crew say? Did they, was he not with them in the TV room? Was, was he somewhere no. else? No. Uh, you know, this is one of the strange things about what happened is he basically disappeared from sight for hours. He, you know, he would later say that he was taken to the engine room to keep the engine running, and he managed to escape from the pirates and hide in a toilet, um, and then, and then basically sort of skulked around for a few hours until the fire became so serious that he had to leave, and then he was rescued. Everyone's so dodgy, and there's no one that isn't dodgy so far. Uh, okay, Lloyds of London are the people that are in charge of the sort of protection strategies for this, because there's a lot of different people who own the ship who want their money back yeah. for potential loss or wastage or mm. the, the actual cargo that the ship's got on it. Where did, how did they get involved? Well, so Lloyd's is, Lloyd's is the market where you buy insurance for anything big. If you want to launch a space rocket or, or you know, carry a million barrels of oil from Ukraine to China or build a skyscraper, whatever it is, you can't do it. You can't get your bank loans without getting insurance. You know, it's just impossible. It wouldn't happen. And so for anything really big, you go through Lloyd's. It's like 500-year-old market. It's been the biggest in the world 
for a long time and it remains the biggest in the world. So that's the place you get your insurance from. And that's the place that connects all the different insurers to a ship like the Brillante Virtuoso. So uh, whenever whenever something bad happens at sea, uh, whenever there's an accident or a fire or you know, a hurricane or whatever it is, um, Lloyd's has sort of an apparatus that kicks into action to start solving problems, um, start trying to rescue the vessel. It's it's a little bit similar to uh, if your bathroom floods, you know, who do you call? The first person you call is your insurer. And then you talk to your insurer and then the insurer negotiates someone to come out and first of all, fix the problem. And then afterwards, uh, try and get some compensation to repair the damage. It's the same in shipping. Okay, so who do Lloyd send? So initially, the first person, on, the first people on the scene are, are salvage experts. Um, salvage crews are like the emergency service of the ocean. They're these guys who roam around looking for shipping accidents, and they show up on the scene as fast as they can. Um, and they're there to they're there to rescue a, a, a sinking ship. Essentially, they'll come on board, plug leaks, put out fires, uh, rescue the crew. And the reason they do that is not not because of uh, that you know they're great guys and they're doing it from the kindness of their hearts. It's because if under under sort of the maritime rules of the Lloyd's market and, and ocean bound trade generally, if you manage to to salvage a ship, you get anything up to sort of ten percent of the value of what it's carrying. Now, if you imagine these days, uh, a big ship might be carrying a billion dollars worth. If you're a salvage crew and you you get one of these ships that run aground and you manage to and you shut and you're first on the scene and you rescue it, that's a huge payout. So it's a, a crazy, risky, dangerous, but very lucrative business. And the first guys that show up is this Greek salvage crew that are based in Aden. And so they start doing some basic firefighting. The ship doesn't sink then? It doesn't sink, no. The fire uh, initially looks like it's gone out, and then there's an upsurge in the, in the inferno, um, and the salvage crew spend a good couple of days doing, doing firefighting efforts. So they're, they're pouring water on board. They eventually board the vessel, and try and try and look at the damage, um, and they're responsible for that ship while it's in the emergency situation. Has there ever been a case where multiple salvage crews have arrived at a ship at the same time and they're competing for it? it sounds like is it like finders keepers? Yes, uh, it, it is a bit like that, and because of the way salvage is, you know, these are these are rough, uh, sort of weather hardened sailors. They're tough people. They have to be. It's that kind of that kind of game. And so it can be quite violent. You know, there can sometimes be conflict between salvage crews if they show up at the same time. You know, I've heard of guns being pointed to keep other salvage crews away. Sometimes um, salvage crews will sort of board a vessel that's in trouble and try and forcibly remove the chains from the other salvage crew so they can take control of it. <laughs> it, it, it can get a bit nasty. But you, when you're talking about $50 million worth of rewards, you can, you can imagine why they do that. Yeah, it's a serious uh, incentive, I suppose, to play dirty. So what about the investigation? Yeah, so so you know after you after you've stopped the flood in your bathroom, you need to someone to come and assess the damage. You need an assessor, and it's the same with this gigantic ship. There's uh, you know a dozen companies potentially facing a loss over this vessel, and what they need is an expert to go and first of all say you know is this ship finished? Is it a total write-off? Can it be repaired and recovered? Uh, and what's the nature of the damage? Uh, what caused the damage? And so the person who does that job is called a marine surveyor. And it just so happened that in nearby Aden, there was a very experienced British guy called Captain David Mockett, who had been doing this job a long time. He was kind of famous in the port city because um, he was about six foot four. He was like by, by half a foot, the tallest guy in the area, had this, this big booming laugh, huge personality. Everyone knew him. And he was the guy that you hire if you want a job done properly um, off the coast of Yemen. So the insurers quickly appointed him to go and do, get his boots on the deck and go and do a proper survey. One fella for the entire boat, for the entire investigation. Well, he, so he's, he's there in the first instance just to get aboard um, quickly to get an idea of the damage. Of course, well, Kind of all like the, the crime scene photos and then perhaps after that they can be assessed by a big team of people. Exactly. So they would eventually expect to tow the, tow the ship somewhere much safer and then there'd be dozens of people crawling all over it. But in the meantime... They need someone to take a look. Um, and David Mockett is the guy they hire. He takes a fishing boat out. He manages to talk his way in with the Greek salvage crew. And he, he gets aboard the vessel, looks around. And like you say, he has a camera. He's taking pictures all the time. He takes hundreds of pictures of the twisted wreckage of the inside of the ship. Uh, and he can, I think he can see early on it's, you know, 
it's completely destroyed. The ship will never be used again. It's, it's damaged beyond repair. What's, ha- what's happened then? The fire's just got rid of some um, important parts of infrastructure? The, the engine room is, is, completely, is, is, is destroyed completely. It's just a black and sooty mess. Um, uh, and you know, at that point, the cost of repairing it would um, be far more expensive than, than you know, just scrapping it or buying a new ship. Okay. So it's a write-off. Um, D- does he see anything suspicious? Well, he's also, he's also looking for signs of how this fire started because, as you pointed out, it's not, it's not very uh, smart pirate behavior to burn your prize once you board a vessel. You've gone to all the trouble to get aboard. Why burn it and leave? So one of the theories that was going around and was, was being used to explain this was that they'd fired a rocket-propelled grenade and that started the fire. So he's, Mocket was looking for signs of a rocket-propelled grenade strike. He didn't find any. He was looking for signs uh, of AK-47 fire. He didn't find much of that either. Um, and so what, what, he, what he came away with was this confused sensation of, you know, this doesn't, the evidence doesn't point to piracy, so what is it? And he, you know, he has to return to Aden. He sends his reports back to London um, and his photographs and all the evidence he's got. Uh, and his initial assessment is there's something strange about this incident. The local authorities are suspicious, and I'm going to need to dig further to find out more. How much is the value of the ship? Uh, that's an interesting question. The ship, for insurance purposes, the ship was valued at about $50 million. Okay, that's so that's the, that, still quite a, a hefty investment as well. Yeah, but it was, a, it was an old ship. It was towards the end of its life, and it wasn't in great shape. It was kind of a rusty wreck. So the, the actual value of the ship, if they tried to sell it, would be, would be much less than that, maybe down to $10 million or below. All right, so what um, happens to David next? So uh, he's back in Aden, and he's, you know, he's doing his job. Trying to, he's talking to experts in the area. He's tapping up his local government sources. And a few days after his survey, he gets in his white Lexus uh, to drive home for lunch, gets a few yards down the street, and uh, a car bomb that's been placed directly under his seat is detonated, uh, which kills him instantly. Pretty serious. Yeah, uh, it, it was an awful attack. I mean, at the time, the local media were saying, this is another terrorist attack. This is another one of these militant groups that operate on the Arabian Peninsula. And on the face of it, that seemed like a plausible explanation. But as soon as you look a bit more closely at the way he was killed, uh, it doesn't make sense. The, the bomb wasn't a sort of large-scale destructive device designed to maim and cause terror. It was a very specific targeted TNT remote detonated device. It was used, the sort of device they use in, a, in Yemen for political assassination. So that didn't fit with the sort of terrorist MO. And then another big problem was in, in the immediate aftermath, no terror group claimed it. Now, in Yemen, as in elsewhere, when a Westerner is killed, when, when a British or American person is killed, the terror group behind it wants the world to know they've done it. That's why they, that's why they do these attacks in the first place. But no one claimed it. Um, and so, you know, it started to look like he'd been killed for another reason, that he'd been targeted specifically for another reason. Is there anything interesting about Yemen or the, the structure there? Because Somalia doesn't have a single government, right? That's kind of still basically up for grabs by whichever person's the most ruthless. Yeah. What, what's Yemen like? Yemen, Yemen back then um, was uh, under the di- dictatorship of a guy called President Saleh, who was you know, a fairly bog-standard developing world kleptocrat. Um, he ran this sort of corrupt network of cronies who made billions of dollars uh, from, from the poorest country in the Middle East. Um, it, wasn't, uh, it wasn't as chaotic as it's since become, but at this particular moment, you know, it was the, the country was on the cusp of civil war. It was the uh, start of the Arab Spring. So all these uprisings against corrupt dictatorships that started in Tunisia and spread across the Middle East had arrived in Yemen, and there were, there were massive street protests. And President Salad, you know, reacted the way that dictators often do, which is to send in troops and open fire on peaceful protesters. So uh, the situation in Yemen was, was chaotic and complicated, for sure. And it's definitely got worse since. Who investigates David's death then? Uh, in the first instance, it's the job of the Yemeni police. Um, 
the, the local Yemeni CID. It's their job. Um, but because this is a British citizen uh, and because President Saleh purportedly has good relations with, with European countries in the US, the British cops decide to send one of their detectives over to liaise with the Yemeni colleagues. Now, of course, this guy, Jonathan Totman, he doesn't have jurisdiction to investigate in Yemen, but he's there to offer assistance and I guess to try and sort of find out as much information as he can for, for the British government and for Mocket's family. So he goes out and sort of joins the, joins the investigation. Does he find anything interesting? Yeah, so we, we know about um, Jonathan Totman's work because uh, at an inquest into David Mockett's death a few months later, he comes and he, he explains what he did in Yemen and why. Um, I guess the picture that emerges is of uh, an investigation that doesn't really do anything you would want uh, police investigators to do. There's no sort of forensic assessment of the of the crime scene. Uh, David Mockett's laptop is destroyed and is never recovered and they refuse to release it to the British police. Um, there's no serious investigation of who potentially might want to hurt David Mockett and why. The whole thing is kind of, you know, uh, seems to be for show. But Jonathan Topman does learn one interesting thing, which is uh, he's having dinner one night with some Yemeni policemen, and they share their feelings about what's happened. And they say, no, they don't think this is terrorism. Um, they think that, that uh, David Mockett has been murdered because of his job, that he's been murdered because of some corrupt scheme to extract money from the shipping uh, insurance industry, and that that was the reason for him to be tar- for targeted. It was a criminal act. And so Totman takes this information back to the inquest, and he shares it with the Mockett family and, and the wider world. It's reported in the British press. Uh, and so now you have this insane situation where an oil tanker has been attacked and burned in uh, what looks, it looks increasingly like uh, a fraud. The one person sent to investigate and find out the truth has been murdered by unknown criminal actors. Uh, and what happens next? Um, well, nothing happens. There's no British police investigation. There's no pressure on the Yemeni government. Yemeni descends further into chaos and civil war. The, there's no criminal investigation into whatever insurance fraud might have happened. Everything gets sort of clogged up in the administrative machine of the Lloyds of London insurance market. Well, why does anything start moving then? If everything's clogged up and everything's going slow and ground to a halt, why does something begin to pick back up? Well, the main reason for that is that the, cl- uh, the ship owner files an insurance claim at Lloyd's. Um, the Greek ship owner files a claim, and, and the value of that claim rises to over $100 million, or in the region of $100 million, because this guy is claiming not only for the value of the ship that's being destroyed, he's also claiming for lost profits and interest. And so the number keeps ticking up, and it becomes... Oh, because the ship is not being used, and by not having the ship, he's losing business, losing business, losing more business. So the number keeps ticking up, and it becomes so large that it's kind of hard to ignore. Now, even at Lloyd's of London, the world's largest insurance market, where, I don't know, I think they pay out something like $200,000 every hour, or some insane sum. You know, there's vast pools of capital out there, almost unlimited. $100 billion over one ship is still an enormous amount of money. So the insurers really have no choice but to to dig a little deeper. And they have the good fortune to um, to hire a legal team who uh, use these investigators, these two former policemen uh, from the Met Police in London, who now do private work um, for the insurance industry and others. And these two guys um, are brought in by the lawyers to, to do deeper investigation into what happened to the ship. And, you know, they have the mentality of crime fighters. They see something that to them looks like a criminal act and they, their motivation is to solve it. At the same time, you know, they're aware of what happened to David Mockett. They meet Mockett's family, his widow, and they see a kind of travesty of justice. And so they become highly motivated, not just to solve the problem of this $100 billion insurance claim, but also to get to something that looks like justice. They're the heroes of the story then so far. In, in as much as this story has heroes. Well, they're the only two, between them and that yeah. Topman guy, they're the only three people that haven't been dodgy yet. <laughs> Everybody else is either dead or dodgy. They, they would probably uh, dispute the characterization of them as heroes, but like, I, I definitely think when this incident happened, 
the various actors reacted in different ways. Some were motivated by politics. Some were motivated by money. Um, there are very few people who made decisions based on integrity, which is I've seen something happen here and it's wrong. You know, a really good guy was murdered. He left behind a wife and daughters and grandchildren. And I know I don't want to be part of that. Very few people made a moral decision about what to do next, apart from our two investigators who were Richard Veal and Michael Connor, um, to the point where they would be giving presentations in the Lloyds of London market that go to these glitzy office buildings uh, in a room full of lawyers and insurance executives. And they would bring up on the screen a picture of Mockett's burnt out car just to remind everyone, you know, this isn't just an insurance contract. This isn't just a dollar dispute. A guy was murdered here. A really good man was murdered and we need to do something about it. What's happening with the investigation into the boat after Mockett dies? Because he was the first person on the scene, but presumably yeah. there was subsequent investigations done after that that were more forensic. Yeah, the ship was, uh, was towed up to the United Arab Emirates and uh, you know, was, was inspected by various agencies, uh, including the insurers. The U.S. Navy's crime scene investigators unit showed up and had a look around. Uh, they were concerned that pirates might now start, be, if they were blowing up oil tankers that were passing through the Middle East, that's something the Navy wanted to know about too. So the ship was picked over, but you know the, the fire is a wonderful way of, of hiding evidence. Um, the ship was so badly damaged, there wasn't really much left for them to look at. Um, they found some kind of suspicious dents that looked like an explosive device had been detonated. But that was really the extent of the evidence. Um, after that, the ship was sold for scrap. And it went off to the place where ships go to die, which are these um, sort of semi-legal shipbreaking yards in Pakistan and India, where they get um, you know, driven up onto the beach and picked apart by hand and all the metal bits taken away and sold. And so, uh, yeah, the ship was literally um, torn to pieces. Uh, the evidence was gone. Um, Presumably so the, the, the barrels of oil must have been taken away and put onto some other ship to transport it away. Yeah, they managed to. The, uh, one of the salvage crews managed to to salvage the uh, the oil. They they siphoned it off onto another ship, as you say, and that was taken away. Um, but that still left a very large insurance claim for the ship itself, which was damaged beyond repair. Um, but the problem they had, like I say, is the, the evidence was gone, destroyed, or burnt, or scrapped. Um, there was lots of expert opinions about the cause of the fire, and lots of sort of legal back and forth about the various debts of the ship owner. But what they, what they were lacking was, you know, really clear evidence that a crime had taken place. What they needed was to speak to people who were on the vessel at the time, who were around in the immediate aftermath, who might actually be able to say, you know, here's what happened to the ship. Here was the cause of the fire. Who's this dodgy Greek salvage guy then? How does he come into it? Uh, Vasilios Virgos is his name. He, he was... Um, I, spoke, I, I told you about the salvage crew that arrived really quickly from, from, uh, from Aden on the Yemeni coast. Uh, and Vasilius Vergas is the guy who runs that salvage outfit, which is called Poseidon Salvage. Now, he's, yeah, he, he's a whole other character. He's, he's a former uh, Greek Navy diver. He was in the Greek Navy's elite diving school. And he was badly injured in a, uh, in a, in a diving accident. I think he got the bends and it left him with a lifelong limp and a bad temper. Um, and he's, he's made this strange life for himself in Yemen. He basically lives on a rusty salvage barge, um, doing bits and bobs for the, for various Yemeni projects. Um, but he's going to famously got a, got a bad temper. So, um, he's first on the scene and he gets, he gets to the Blante Virtuoso in like four hours, um, from nearby Aden, which is astonishingly fast. I mean, like he was on the scene so quickly that. He must have woken up immediately on getting the call, started his engines and bolted straight for the ship, like a, remar a remarkable feat of efficiency. Um, but there's lots of questions about him. You know, th the first one being, well, how did he know to be ready in the middle of the night in Yemen? How did he get there so fast? Um, he, you know, he, he, he has one of these characters that investigators look at and they see his track records. And, you know, they, they maybe he's not in the elite uh, ranks of salvage crews. He's not. Um, there's a famous Dutch company that that's um, are famous all over the world. You know, he's kind of on the on, on one of the lower rungs of the ladder. He's got one of these ramshackle operations. Who's the other Greek guy? That Super Mario guy. That's not the same person, is it? 
No, so uh, Super Mario it was the guy who owned the Brillante Virtuoso. He's the he's the big tycoon, um, and uh, yeah, he's got a fleet of of tankers and um, and container ships that he operates around the world. And he's part of the the Greek shipping class, which is to say that he's very rich. He lives in Greece, pays almost no tax, uh, and he lives this kind of life of Bond villain luxury, uh, running his fleets. Um, his particular hobby is racing cars. He's a rally driver, uh, and he's actually quite good. He's um, he, he he does competitive racing around around Greece, and he'll win competitions. He's he's a good driver, and uh, and uh, racing rally cars was always his first passion. Um, but he sort of fell into the family business of, of running a fleet, um, and he's a relatively prominent prominent character in Greece. I mean, he owns the main fast ferry line between the mainland and the holiday islands. So anyone who's been sort of boating around Greek may well have been on one of his vessels. Companies called sea jets. So he had, you know, he has he has this this big reputation, um, and it turns out that he's the owner of the Brillante. Risk taker. Yes. Adrenaline junkie guy. Yes. Mixed with yeah. disgruntled, uh, one and a half legged uh, Greek salvage owner. Yes. Again, we're just continuing to add more and more dodgy people to this to this list. Yeah. Didn't some dude from Lloyd's mm. say that this had happened before at the funeral? Didn't he tell the wife that it had happened before? Yeah. I mean, one of the things the investigators uh, ran into early was, although it may be hard to believe, um, sometimes the Lloyds of London insurance market doesn't know who owns the ships they're insuring. All they see is a brass plate company name with a generic title, but they might not know who the beneficial owner is. So the first job they had um, in the aftermath of the attack was to find out who actually owned the Brillante. And the insurance guys didn't know. They thought it was, they thought it was some other entity. And then they discovered it was Mario Siliopoulos. And, you know, then there was immediate name recognition. They knew that name. The reason they knew his name was that another ship owned by him had got into trouble only a few miles away a couple of years earlier. It had mysteriously, um, there'd been a fire on the bridge. It had run into a sandbank and the salvage operation had gone disastrously wrong. And the ship ended up splitting in two like a watermelon. Uh, and the other thing that caught the, the investors, uh, the investigators' attention was that it was exactly the same salvage crew who arrived with remarkable speed from Aden to help out. It's our old friend Vasilius Virgos, the limping Greek diver. So he's on the scene as well. So you've got same ship owner, same salvage crew, and remarkably, the chief engineer, the Filipino chief engineer, was the same on both voyages as the well. The one that stuck about for two hours. So yeah, yeah. So you know, one unfortunate accident off the coast of Yemen is bad luck. Two is probably something else. Dude, I, I can't believe it's so ridiculous how sort of flagrant and blatant the dodginess is. All right, so what, what, what happens next? We, it seems like all of the pieces at least start to come together, but presumably the investigators, other than coincidence, the investigators don't mm. really seem to have much to tie people together yet. They don't have a lot of physical evidence, no. And they're also, they're also battling against this this kind of institutional complacency that you get in, in the city of London, in lots of industries, to be fair, but also in the insurance industry, where, you know, Lloyd's of London has been running for 500 years. For 500 years, it's been a reliable source of income for the British middle and upper classes, you know, the elites of London life. Um, they quietly make tons of money at Lloyd's. They would uh, much prefer to do so without any fuss or attention. And... Um, it's a great business for them to be in. You know, they, they get to go to the pub for lunch and uh, they have wonderful bespoke suits and, you know, they have this sort of privileged existence and, you know, they're not very incentivized to look closely at the nasty criminal parts of the shipping industry. There's just no reason for them to do it. Um, you might imagine that if there's fraudulent insurance claims being made, it would be expensive for them to pay. And so they wouldn't pay them. They would fight. But actually, the reverse is true. It's actually, in most cases, a lot easier just to pay to make these problems go away and then pass the cost on to the customers by raising your premiums, mm. which is what Lloyd's has been doing for hundreds of years. It, um, it's, it sounds like the shipping industry, that the um, dodginess is so endemic that what are you going to do? You're going to fight this one guy 
well, what about the next guy? And what about the next guy? Every single one of the claims that could be made is going to come from someone that has a shell company in yeah. Bermuda. And didn't you say that most of the company, like each boat is owned by a single company? Yeah, it's a single ship system. Um, yeah, it's, it's partly the scale of the problem, but also, uh, unfortunately, fraud and criminality has kind of been built in to the cost stru- structure of, of the Lloyds of London insurance market. Um, they know it happens. They know that it's expensive. Um, and they tolerate it. Um, they figure that, let's say one in fifty. This is I'm, I'm making this number up. Yeah. Let's say one in fifty ship casualties isn't an accident. It's been done on purpose to get the insurance money. They figure it's simpler to simpler just to pay that one in fifty and keep doing what they've been doing, rather than go through big, expensive legal battles, rather than go through all the terrible publicity of accusing a customer of fraud, and rather than actually facing up to the fact that there's this really nasty criminal underworld that's kind of attached itself to the shipping business. So rather than do any of those things, they just pay and they, and they keep doing what they've always been doing. So, uh, you know, our two investigators in this story, Richard Veal and Michael Connor, they constantly encounter this reluctance to, to go and get the answers they need. Um, they are prevented from doing the investigation they want to do. They're not allowed to interview the crew. As crazy as that sound, they weren't given, they weren't given access to the crew. Um, there are a load of sources that they identify who might have information about how the ship was attacked. They are prevented from going to do that. And, you know, the situation becomes really tense and kind of uh, conflicted where they're fighting against their own legal team and saying, we need to do more. They've been brought in by Lloyds of London, though. Mm-hmm. So it does seem that Lloyds of London felt like, presumably they can't bring in this level of investigation for every uh one of these if you've said that it's easier for lloyds to pay out it seems like they've maybe got something in the side of their minds that's made them think we there's something up here let's Mm. bring these grizzled old met officers in to come and do a bit of work i'd I'd love to tell you that the the thing that made this exceptional was that david mockett was murdered and then you know there may be some truth in that but the evidence doesn't necessarily point that way the evidence just points to the fact that once the once this claim reached a certain size, once they were uh, on the hook for a certain sum of money, they decided it was time to fight because um, they didn't want to just pay. Um, and their, their their own lawyers have written in legal filings that they would have been happy to settle this case had the sum of money not been so large. Wow. Okay. So what happens next? So next, it's um. Uh, it's full speed ahead in this in this lawsuit between the Greek ship owner and the Lloyds of London insurers, and things get really messy and dangerous quite quickly. Um, the ship owner Super Mario is incredibly hostile to uh, any attempt by the insurers to get information out of him. He uh, isn't handing over evidence. You know, hard drives full of emails go missing. Uh, it all becomes quite threatening. And this is where I entered the story because uh, at the time I was I was covering the courts in London, and I'd sort of become aware of the Berlante Virtuoso incident, and I happened across uh, on the court lists one day seeing the name of the company that owned the ship um, in in one of the big courts in London. I just turned up, and what I stumbled into was Super Mario, the ship owner, had been summoned by a London judge to give evidence uh, in the case, and. You know, I've been to hundreds and hundreds of commercial trials. I've never seen anything quite like this. Um, he was a bellicose and angry and belligerent, waving his finger. At one point, he threatened the English lawyers. You just, you just don't see these things in the rarefied sort of world of London, London law. Um, it was, it was uh, frankly very entertaining and, and a little amusing. Um, and then uh, at the end of this two days of you know, incredibly fraught cross-examination, he walks out of court and is arrested by the City of London police for fraud, uh, Which, accused of fraud. fraud. Well, it, he's, he's arrested on suspicion of a fraud against the Lloyds of London insurance market. Oh, so for this, this wasn't him so, getting picked up for something else. This is him getting else. picked <laughs> up for this, right. This is for the Berlante Virtuoso. And so I've, I've walked into this mad situation where there's a simultaneous, very hostile lawsuit and criminal investigation, uh, and this remarkable character of a ship owner. Um, 
and that's where I sort of pick up the story. Um, it takes a, it takes a good few months after that to sort of unravel what's happening because all that I've told you so far is happening behind closed doors in the city of London. Um, so it took us quite a while to get up to speed on exactly who. Super where did Mario you get? Was. Where did you do your investigation then? How did you get any of this information from behind closed doors? Uh, well, it took about four or five years of um, uh, talking to people mainly. Uh, we did about 150 interviews. Uh, we, we know we compiled loads of documentation. The lawsuit helped because any time there's a lawsuit, you get a sort of backbone of, of documentary evidence that's that's relatively reliable. But the lawsuit didn't deal with a lot of things we wanted answers to. You know, we we wanted to know more about David Mockett's life and death. Uh, we wanted to know more about the the sailors on the ship and what what their experience had been like. So we had to take what had been done so far and, and try and push it forward and go to places the police hadn't been, go to places the insurance investigators couldn't go and get the answers no one else could. What ended up happening with Super Mario then? Was he released back to Greece? Super Mario was released without charge. Uh, he uh, no commented his interview, didn't give many information. They searched his room, but um, no, they let him go and I don't think he'll ever come back to London. <laughs> yeah, I think that that's right. And then David's death, has anyone been charged with that? No, no one's ever been charged with David's meth, David uh, Mockett's death, unfortunately, um, which is a continuing source of pain for his widow. You know, if you can imagine losing someone in your life that you really care about, that's hard enough, you know, devastated his family. They were there, they were just about to retire as well. And she'd spent her whole life away from David. He'd been at sea or working in ports around the world for their whole married life together. And he was just about to retire and they were going to finally spend some time together. So she's been left with a terrible hole in her life. But I think it's been made worse by the fact that there's been no reconciliation. There's been no, uh, no attempt to punish the act of murder. In fact, if anything, for a few years afterwards, it, the whole thing was completely forgotten about and no one wanted to talk about it. No one even paid her a visit. The insurance companies that uh, hired David Mockett uh, never once contacted her to say anything, let alone apologize or, you know, offer her something by way of an explanation. So that makes the grief a lot harder to process, I think, because there's this unresolved pain that she's never been able to get over. Is there an insurance policy for people like Mockett going out to dangerous countries? Uh, there was, but um, his his local employer in Yemen did a runner, and um, she never got any of that money. Yeah. <laughs> oh my God! Isn't, isn't insurance a funny thing? No, no, it's not. It's just tragic. It's not funny in the slightest. Okay, mm. so uh, Super Mario's back in Greece. He's yeah. he's been released without charge after no commenting. Uh, yeah. David Mockett's death hasn't been investigated, and. Mm -hmm evidence will have been frittered away it's in a, a country with even worse sort of political standing than it was 11 years ago when all of this happened yeah. has the payout to super mario's company been agreed yet or is that still ongoing so there's the, the one thing that has been resolved in all this mess is what happened to the brillante virtuoso and you know after a very long and tetchy trial um, uh, a high court judge in London ruled that uh, the ship had been deliberately burned by uh, uh, members of the Yemeni Coast Guard who had been hired by Marius Iliopoulos and his associates, including Vasilius Virgos, the limping salva, in a sort of pre-planned act of insurance fraud where um, Super Mario was short of money. He was, you know, he was desperately short of cash. The Berlante was hemorrhaging losses for him and he needed a way to get rid of his ship. And they came up with this kind of harebrained conspiracy where they were going to make it look like a pirate attack, but hire some guys to come on board and start a fire and wreck the ship. Um, you know, they very nearly got away with it. And, you know, they, they chose wisely in terms of the location for their fraud because they did it in Yemen. Yemen is an impossible place for anyone to operate. It's, you know, it's been in a brutal civil war for years it's had outbreaks of cholera and COVID, uh, Saudi bombs falling all the time. They, cho they chose very cleverly, um, which is the, probably the reason most of the perpetrators have escaped justice. In fact, all of the perpetrators have escaped justice. But importantly for our understanding of what happened, the judge found that, yes, it was a conspiracy. 
Yes, it was done at the behest of Super Mario. Yes, Vasilius Virgos was involved. And so we, we, we got a little bit closer to the truth. How did he know that it was Coast Guard repurposed as pirates? He, um, so I think to answer that question, you have to look at how crime works on an international sort of complicated level. And when you're talking about transnational crime, drug running, uh, people smuggling, there are sort of loosely affiliated international networks of criminals. The Italian mafia will be loosely affiliated with the Irish mob and, you know, the Colombian cartels. And they, they're not sort of locked together in an ironclad conspiracy. They work with each other when it's financially beneficial to do so. Friendships of convenience. Yeah, and, it, you know, um, so the, the Greek criminal cartel that arranged the attack on the ship and profited from it had local fixers in Aden. And one of them was Vasilius Virgos, uh, this incredible character who, who teamed up with a local businessman and they managed to get access to the local power structure in Yemen. Um, and, you know, of course, back then in Yemen, probably as now, it's not very difficult to get access to the local power structure if, you, if you're willing to throw some money around. Um, so it wasn't very, actually very difficult for them to find Yemeni Coast Guard members who are willing to do a job for a bit of extra cash. Has Vasilius been charged? No, he's never been charged with a crime. I should say that, um, although he doesn't exactly deny the allegations against him, um, we are the only ones, as far as I know, who have ever spoken to him about it. We managed to reach him by phone shortly before the book was finished. Um, as far as I know, he's still in Greece. Um, What's he like? What's he like to speak to? Well, let, let me tell you this. When we sent him uh, by text, uh, a list of sort of bullet points of the things that we were about to publish in our book. Uh, this is sort of standard journalistic practice. You're going to write something about someone, they should have a right to know, they should have a right to reply. So we did this process and we sent him a text and his reply was a smiling, a crying with laughter emoji, which um, sort of tells you something about his attitude to um, sort of allegations of criminality and wrongdoing. Didn't seem to be overly concerned about them. Uh, he didn't engage much more than that, quite frankly. He didn't really engage with, you know, all the evidence against him uh, and what was said by the London judge. All all he would say to us was, this is ridiculous. How would I know? And, you know, all the evidence has been made up by people who are trying to blackmail me. And then, and then he sort of cut off contact. So where's the investigation at now? And what do you think is going to happen in the, the sort of near future? Well, the, the sort of cause of Cynthia Mocker has been picked up by her local MP in Devon, who's raised it in the Houses of Parliament. Um, and he called it a travesty of justice. And, and he sort of, he asked the question of the, of the, of the justice minister, the head of the, of the, of the justice department, um, you know, what are we going to do about this? And I think the police's attitude is that well, it's not our job to investigate a murder in Yemen. And of course, they're right about that. They have no jurisdiction to go over to Aden and start throwing people in the back of police vans. But the point of Cynthia Mockett uh, and of Michael Connor, actually, the investigator who's been helping her, is that you don't need to prosecute that crime. You can treat this as a financial crime. You can do what they did to Al Capone. Right? They got him on his taxes. Treat this as an act of maritime piracy and an act of insurance fraud, and then you can start to bring charges. But no one's been willing to do that. And I think it's clear... The British police see it as too difficult and too problematic to pursue a case. But it's not too late. Um, as this MP pointed out, the evidence is still there. Um, you know, uh, someone could pick this up and pursue it from a law enforcement point of view. Uh, it would just take a little bit of will and bravery. So it remains to be seen whether that will happen. And the money to Super Mario wasn't paid out. Has that case been finished now with Lloyds? The lawsuit is is ended and... Um, it ended up as kind of like a pyrrhic victory for the insurers because they won the case. You know, technically they won the case. The judge, the judge found that they didn't have to pay on the insurance claim because it was a fraud. But um, they didn't actually win in any real sense because Super Mario managed to extricate himself from the legal process because he refused to hand over evidence, because he basically didn't play the game of London litigation the way you're supposed to. He just cut himself off from the process. Um, his claim was thrown out, but he had an existing insurance policy 
that his from his bank, his uh, his lenders who lent him money to buy the boat had their own insurance policy, but they continued the case against the London insurers. So the lawsuit ended up as insurer versus insurer, which group of insurers were going to pay for the damage to the Palante Virtuoso. Super Mario got away, um, and basically he what he had at the start of this was an aging, rusting, useless, money-losing oil tanker. He burned it. Um, oh, and he had, sorry, he had about $60 million in loans to cover the cost of that oil tanker. He burned his own ship. He was freed from his loans. His, you know, his debt went to zero on the ship. And he was also freed of his money-losing ship. So by some standards, you could say he's won. He's probably at least tens of millions of dollars better off than he would have been if he hadn't sunk his own ship, which is one of the crazy things about this story, uh, one of the things that still blows my mind. Yeah, I can't believe it. This story is is insane. Uh, well, Kit, dude, the, congratulations on the lengthy and very impressive investigation. The book's great. The story's fantastic. Uh, if people want to keep up to date with the stuff that you do or your further investigation with regards to the story. You did a great piece on the Ever Given and, and what that caused as well. Where should they go to, to keep up to date with your work? Uh, you, can, you can follow me on Twitter, at Kit Shalel. Uh, like any vain journalist, I, I post all my stories on there. Um, yeah, and, and check out Dead in the Water. Look, it, it, Father's Day is coming up. It, if, if you know someone in your life who loves sort of crazy yarns about life on the open sea, um, you know, this is definitely one of those. I've been doing this job a long time and I've never seen anything quite like this. Chris, I appreciate you. Cheers. Thanks, man.